episode 27 of the Rainbow Pridecast. I'm your host, Danielle Dupuy, and I use the pronouns she, her, hers. Co-hosting with me today is... Uma Ribeiro, and I use the pronouns she, her, hers. And today, we're joined by Leslie Newman, um, an LGBTQ plus literary icon, most, noto- most notably known for her young adult novel, October Morning, A Song for Matthew Shepard, which was a Stonewall honor book, and also for her picture book, Heather Has Two Mommies one of the first LGBTQ plus picture books featuring a lesbian family. Welcome to the Pridecast, Leslie. Very happy to be here. Um, now, currently you reside in Massachusetts, correct? A very, yes. A very liberal state. Um, have you always lived there or? No, I'm from New York. Mm-hmm. I was born in Brooklyn and I lived in New York until I left home for college. Okay. And then was there a particular reason that you moved to Massachusetts? Well, I came here, you know, it was not a direct route. I lived in um, Boston. I lived, I moved back to New York City. I lived in Israel. I lived in Colorado. And then um, I came here. Actually, it's a very happy coincidence. I didn't know Northampton was such a progressive town and so LGBTQ plus friendly, but um, that was a great coincidence. And I've been here for Oh, 35 years. Oh, wow. I had no idea. That's awesome. I didn't know you lived in so many places. Yeah. Um, can we go back a little bit to the start of your writing career? Um, prior to Heather Has Two Mommies, what were you writing about? Or was this your first book? Okay, so we have to go way back. I started writing when I was about eight years old. And my first publications were some poems in Seventeen magazine uh, in 1976, uh, some poems that were written when I was a teenager. And then I actually moved to Colorado to study at the Jack Kerouac School of Disembodied Poetics. Mm -hmm. And I was mentored by Allen Ginsberg. And I had a... A poetry chapbook published in 1980. That was my first book. And then after that, um, I moved back to the East Coast and my first novel, which is called Good Enough to Eat, came out in 1986. And that is a novel about a young woman who is struggling with uh, body image and sexuality. And then I had a book of short stories come out called A Letter to Harvey Milk, which are nine short stories about Jewish lesbians. And then after all that, um, I was stopped on the street by a woman who said to me one day, you know, there are no children's books that show a family like mine. Somebody should write one. And the reason she was talking to me about this is because she had read my work for adults. And so I, that's when the idea popped into my head to write Heather has two mommies. And then after that, I started writing more children's books. Some are about LGBTQ families. Some are about Jewish families. Some are about animals. Some are about gender expression. So that's kind of a very short, brief summary of my literary career. Wow, that's it's oh, mad. Sorry, mm-hmm. can I just chime in because did you say that you were mentored by Allen Ginsberg? I know. That is so awesome. So oh, Alan was very kind to me. He took me under his wing. He made me his homemade Jewish chicken soup, which was delicious. Um my job was to answer his mail. 
So this was in 1979, 1980. And so, you know, there was no email. So he would get these piles of mail and we dumped them out on his desk. And his desk, by the way, was a door propped up on two wooden sawhorses. And we would go through the mail one letter at a time. And one thing I learned from Alan was that he didn't care if the letter was from some quote unquote important person like a politician or some person who was not as well known like a a gay kid growing up in Kansas. He paid the same amount of attention to every letter. He did not have any kind of hierarchy in his mind. And so, you know, I learned from him that people are people. And if somebody took the time to write to him, he took the time to answer them. So in exchange for going through his mail with him, he um, read my poetry and gave me feedback. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. I was just reading Hal for like the fourth time yesterday. That's just, wow. Um, that's amazing. Okay. Um, was there a particular teacher or moment that made you realize you were meant to be a writer? Well, I would say working with Alan. But before that, I took a creative writing class in high school. Um, and my teacher was named Miss Stern. And she also was very kind to me and very encouraging. Um, but when I went out to Naropa, really, Alan and some of the other teachers there, um, Ann Waldman, Ted Berrigan, Alice Notley, they all took me very seriously as a poet. And that's, I think, when I really knew that this is what I was going to do. But was there like any particular moment besides working with all these people that you just knew you wanted to be a writer or did you always know you wanted to be a writer? I pretty much always knew. I mean, you know, I was a voracious reader when I was a kid. I loved the library, both the school library and the public library. And I would look at books and I would, you know, turn to the back and see the author photo and imagine myself on a book jacket someday. Um, So you know, there really was never anything else I wanted to do. So, you know, it's just something that was inside me. I don't know where it comes from, except my mom also wanted to be a writer. So for various reasons, she didn't pursue it. So I like to think that um, I carry her with me uh, through my writing. Um, Now, you mentioned that, um, you know, being a poet, I would, that I'm sorry, I kind of fumble over my words sometimes, that, um, you had mentioned that um, poetry is something near and dear to you, that you are a poet. Were you exposed to a lot of poetry as a kid or did you naturally just um, kind of fall into writing poetry? Um, what brought about the, the poetry form? Well, you know, it's a very odd thing because, no, nobody really read poetry to me when I was a kid. I just started writing it um, just came out of me. And I think that everybody has some passion in them, whether it's for playing a musical instrument or playing a sport or writing or painting or dancing or drawing. And, you know, it just, if you're lucky, um, you can tap into that and it can be a friend for your entire life. So I turned to writing in times of joy, in times of sorrow, in times of anger. And, you know, I don't know. Nobody said to me, why don't you try poetry? But it just is something that I've always been drawn to. And so I, you know, when I got older, I read poetry on my own and I still read and write poetry. It's still my first love. And I think that writing picture books is very similar to writing poetry in many ways because you don't have that many words, but you really have to tell a full story. Mm-hmm. Now, going back to picture books, 
Um, you had mentioned about how Heather has two mommies kind of came about that you were stopped on a street by a fellow reader. They wished that there was a book about their family. Um, did they, did, did that particular family, was their daughter named Heather or did you come up with that name on your own? No, their daughter is named Sarah okay. actually. Um, but I just like the H sounds Heather has two mommies. So mm-hmm. I just came up with that name on my own. Gotcha. And um, did you know a lot of other lesbian families at the time or? Uh, yes. So my community, it was full of lesbian parents with mm-hmm. kids. And so even though I don't have children, I grew up in a community um, full of lesbian moms. So I felt very familiar with that culture and able to tell that story. Mm-hmm. And I really like the story as, as a lesbian mom. I really like the story. I like the, the fact that um, you know, that it's special, but not special in the fact that, you know, here's this kid and this is their family and look, they're doing all these normal things together and she's going to school and, you know, um, and then I like the way that you have the teacher handle the situation where Heather realizes, you know, like, Hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. I don't have a dad. And then, you know, the teacher's like, okay, well, why doesn't everybody, um, let's draw a picture of our families, you know, it just seemed like a really healthy and very teachery thing to do. Like, all right, let's take a look. Oh, look, not everybody has the same kind of family. You know, isn't this great that, you know, that everybody loves you. And um, it's just a really nice, good feeling kind of story. And, you know, there's no quote unquote agenda. Um, you know, it's just telling, telling the story of this is what other families look like, you know, just like yours. Um and speaking of uh, agenda, um, you had mentioned actually in a Hornbook article you wrote in 1997 that um, you were repeatedly accused of having a gay agenda. And when all you really wanted to do was tell this story. And um, it kind of makes me laugh because I was recently, you know, I recently said something because uh, to my my friends about um, the gay agenda. Like, what does my gay agenda look like? Well, let's see. You know, today I got up and I did laundry. You know, I planned. I taught some classes. Like, what does an agenda, what does a gay agenda even look like? Um, what, uh, do you have any words of wisdom or advice um, that for those people that are coming out and saying, you know, like, oh, LGBTQ folk, they have like a, they have an agenda uh, just because they're advocating for their community. Um, how did you, right. how did you kind of handle that or deal with it or? Well, you know, the quote unquote agenda of the book is found in the teacher's comment after she looks at all the pictures uh, that the kids draw. And she says, it doesn't matter if you have two moms or, or how many moms or how many dads your family has. It doesn't matter if you, if you have grandpa parents or uncles or aunts or brothers or sisters, the most important thing about a family is that all the people in it love each other. So I kept saying to people, that's my agenda. The most important thing about a family is that all the people in it love each other. So can you explain to me what's controversial about that? You know, so I just think that when people accuse us of having an agenda, I try to flip it around and say, well, what's your straight agenda? You know, Mm -hmm. um, is your agenda to have a mom and a dad family for all families? Well, you know, that clearly is not what has happened for, you know, um, decades. Mm -hmm. That's actually not the prevalent family constellation in this country. Um, And I don't think that, 
you know, agenda. It's such a strange word. I mean, I think of a business meeting, Um, (laughs) you know, really, you know, if my agenda is to teach people to be kind, respectful, accepting and celebratory of all kinds of family, then, okay, I'll take that agenda. Mm-hmm. That's what they you know. That's what I'm trying to put forth into the world. Right. Um, now, when I, I remember, actually, the first time that I heard of uh, Heather Has Two Mommies was actually, I believe, in, in library school, um, where, you know, it kept coming up as a challenged book. Um, what went through your mind when you found out that your book was going to be, that your book was challenged? Well, you know, there were so many challenges. I couldn't believe it because, you know, the rest of the story is that I could not get this book published no matter what I did. You know, I went to all kinds of publishers, small, large, lesbian, mainstream. And so then a friend of mine who is a lesbian mom, her daughter, not the not the woman who's talking on the street, but a, a good friend of mine, her daughter right, was one at the time. And we just kind of looked at each other and said, well, let's just put it out on our own, you know? Mm-hmm. So, and we, you know, raised letters before Kickstarter. We licked envelopes. We stuffed envelopes. <laughs> um, we put stamps on envelopes. And so I just didn't think anyone would care, you know, because I didn't couldn't get the book out into the world. So when it started getting attention, I was kind of flabbergasted. And then I was dismayed um, and I was frustrated. um, And then I became determined, you know, I mean, you know, this is the kind of person I am. If you tell me to shut up, I'm just going to yell louder. So, (laughs) so um, what I started doing was traveling around the country, talking about the rights of LGBTQ families. And, you know, I kind of addressed that through my book. Um, So, that was my response was, you know, you can have your opinion, even though I think it's wrong that these families shouldn't exist, but we do exist. And, um, I'm going to defend them. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's also, you know, in some ways it's, it's kind of good that the book was challenged because it brought, I think it, it probably, um, came to more people's attention that way. Like, Oh, what are they talking about? Why is this book challenged? Let me get this book and read it and find out, you know, what's so bad about it. Right. Well, they they do say that, you know, banning books or challenging books, you know, improves your book sales. Um, So that did happen, you know, because the book was on all kinds of news shows and, um, you know, got a lot of attention. Um, And I'm very happy that it's still in print, you know, still selling well and still of use to not only uh, families with two lesbian moms, but to... um, friends of those families, to Mm -hmm. teachers, to educators, to anybody who really feels the inclination to show kids the wonderful diversity that makes up our world. How many times has your book been uh, reprinted? Oh, I would have to look that up. I don't know. But, you know, many times, Mm -hmm. many, many thousands of copies sold. Um, and hopefully many happy kids who have a book that shows a family like theirs. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, and you just got a new, uh, it just kind of got a, a new makeover not too long ago with uh, new illustrations and things. Yep. So back in, you know, in the ancient days when we put the book out in 1989, <laughs> the way books were printed was, you know, a very elaborate process and you had to pay extra for color printing, which we didn't have. Mm-hmm. So that's why the original book 
is illustrated in black and white drawings. And then um, the book did go out of print very briefly because the publisher went bankrupt. So then when it was picked up by Candlewick, they said, let's do new illustrations, which, you know, are really cool. Um, Heather has these really great purple cowgirl boots, um, you know, and, and she's just, she seems very confident and feisty. And I, I like the way she is depicted. Um, so anyway, so then that's why we decided to re-illustrate the book. And I also got to make a few um, tweaks in the text, which was great. And yeah, so Heather marches on um 30 years later right 31 years later now yeah that's amazing I mean it's so cool and very exciting um yeah you know to see that your book is still in print and still um you know people still want to read it and still getting checked out and um you know I don't think that uh quite so many books always have that long of a shelf life um no well it's been called a classic yeah which is really great and you know what one thing that's very amusing. It's been parodied all over the place. Once in a while, people call me up and say, oh, I just watched Golden Girls and they mentioned your book. <laughs> or, um, you know, there was this um, thing where at some point the Girl Scouts were accused of lesbianism and witchcraft or something. Oh, and gosh. so um, um, one of the comics, it might have been Colbert, um, made up um, some new Girl Scout cookies and one was called Heather Has Two Malamars. <laughs> so that was great. <laughs> So, um, you know, and in Best in Show, which is a movie about oh, dog yes. shows, yes. remember they said one of the dogs had two mommies. So, you know, we get, and it was it was referenced on Will and Grace. So that's kind of oh, and it was in um, the new it was an answer to a two part clue in the New York Times crossword puzzle. So, oh, wow. yeah, Heather's really had quite quite a life there. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. For, for a little book that, you know, we were begging people to donate $10 so we can bring it out to um, all of this is really quite amazing. Oh, that is. That is really, really cool. Um, so speaking of like band and challenge books, um, so I am a part of a library group. And recently, as in yesterday, there was actually a school board meeting that met um, in Sullivan County, Pennsylvania, and about two hours into the meeting, one of the board members brings up the fact that, oh my gosh, there's like an LGBTQ plus display, a rainbow, a rainbow in the library um, is how he referred to it. And it refers to members of, and he refers to the members of the LGBTQ plus community as those people. Um, and then he says that, you know, the display should be taken down immediately, that it personally makes him uncomfortable. Um, I mean, I know personally how I feel when I hear people talking about this, but I'd be really interested in hearing what your both your view as an LGBTQ plus author and Uma as your student as a student view are on the fact that school boards are making decisions about the freedom to read. So this is a school library. This is a school. So it is. It was a, a county school board had a meeting, and yes, it was about a display, an LGBT a rainbow display in the library. So the way I feel about this is. You know, if you don't want to read Heather Has Two Mommies, that's fine. But you don't have the right to make it inaccessible so that nobody can make that decision for themselves. And also, it sounds like this person is assuming that there are no LGBTQ plus students at this school. And I would really beg to differ, you know, because we are everywhere. And when I think, what is the message to that child? 
you know, that you are not okay, that you don't belong here, you know, that's abuse. That's very, very harmful and going to have lasting repercussions. So, you know, I strongly disagree, obviously, with that stance. And I hope that um, the play remains up. Mm -hmm. I feel as though people like that should not even be on school boards. I mean, this is about the livelihood of students. And if you're going to be discriminatory like that, then you should not even, you know, be making decisions that will impact students and youth and young adults. Um, and that's just, yeah, I, they have no right to police what students read. Um, they have no right to do that. And they should keep those um, discriminatory opinions to themselves. And, and I really feel as though people like that should not even be on school boards and there should be there should be more in-depth background checks because there are um, people, there are students of the LGBTQ plus community in all schools. There are people with uh, two moms, there are people with two dads and that that's just hateful talk and that should not be allowed um, anywhere near a school system. Mm -hmm. I completely agree. I could not have said it better. I agree with both of you as well. The school board member also, one of the things, his arguments was, are we going to start putting up displays about the KKK? And, um, oh my God. and I was just like, oh my goodness, I can't believe he just went there. Um, you know, and even in that kind of comparison, um, right. it's definitely a social and moral responsibility to expose um, people to all different kinds of people, whether that's different religions, whether it's different cultures, um, different parts of our history, um, and, you know, uh, being able to provide them with an abundance of information about everything. Um, and, you know, I, I feel like as librarians, you highlight, you know, you highlight authors, you highlight uh, different subjects of books, like, I don't understand what the big deal is in, in my in my mind, I don't think it's a big deal at all. Um, and, uh you know, I don't know. It's just disappointing. Disappointing that. Well, it's... you know, for for someone to equivocate the LGBTQ plus community with the KKK, I mean, right there, you know, you you can just see that person has speaking of agendas, you know, and, uh, all kinds of agendas and preconceived notions and hateful thoughts, and you know, that's just absurd and and very offensive. Well, the other thing too that kind of was surprising is that. Um, to me is that is that we really have a long way to go and far as far as educating community about our community um obviously heather has two mommies was was kind of a, a breakthrough in that and it's obvious that more people need to read books such as those to see that the uh traditional hetero cis relationship is not the only way that the world doesn't revolve around that um, right. And, you know, one thing that I especially wanted to drive home in that book was that point. So when the kids draw pictures of their family, you see a kid being raised by grandparents, a kid with two dads, a kid with a mom and a dad, a kid who was adopted, a kid in a wheelchair. I mean, you know, there's just so much diversity and uh, different races, of course, in, in our um, world. And, you know, why do we keep just sticking to this one type of family, which is not even the majority. Mm -hmm. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, and for this speech to exist, especially now, I mean, it wasn't, just... it wasn't, it's not a speech. It was just, it was a school board meeting. And you know how COVID is now, all the school yeah. board meetings are like on YouTube or whatever. And 
somebody had just made the post and I watched it. And I was like, oh my gosh, I can't even believe that this like took place yesterday. Like it feels like something that should have been maybe discussed like 20 years ago, but not like yeah. yesterday. Um, well, you know, I think that people are feeling more free to indulge in their hatred and hate speech because of our lack of compassionate leadership. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Know, and also, I think because all this stuff is on YouTube or Zoom or however, you know, it's not in person. So I think people do feel a little more free to say whatever they want. It's not in a room face to face with someone. Mm-hmm. It's allowed people to hide more. Um, and then additionally with this, uh, the administration that we've had for these past four years, um, people are just free to be as hateful as they want because they see someone in power doing that. So they think that they can just do that as well. And that should really not be anywhere, but especially not in a school system and where, you know, it's about the livelihood of kids and, and young adults. Um, so that's just, it's terrible that that was even said, and, and especially now in 2020. Mm-hmm. Agreed. I just wanted to hear each of your opinions about it, uh, especially since we were talking about challenge books. Going back to your books, Leslie, um, you have written so so many poems and chat books and, and books. Um, how many would you say, like, what would the percentage be of your books that feature LGBTQ plus uh, subjects or characters? Huh. Well, I just kind of swiveled in my chair to look at my bookcase. I would say maybe half, but it's hard for me to tell. But that, that would be a, a good homework assignment for me. I think I'll, I'll do a little count and, and see what I come up with. Mm-hmm. But in the beginning of my career, I wrote more for adults. And pretty much all of that work had LGBTQ content, you know, novels and short stories. And then when I turned to picture books, you know, a a lot of them like um, Heather Estramami's and Donovan's Big Day, which is about a little boy whose two moms get married, Mommy, Mama and Me, Daddy, Papa and Me, Sparkle Boy. Um, But then I also have a, a good number of Uh, books that um, feature Jewish families and um, they don't have explicit LGBTQ content. Mm -hmm. So I would, I would have to like do a little head count. Thinking about kind of like the time frame of the eighties and nineties when you were um, first publishing some of your work. um, I'm, I'm guessing that it wasn't terribly commonplace to have a lot of uh, literature featuring LGBTQ plus characters. Am I correct in that assumption? So, you know, like, for example, my short story collection, A Letter to Harvey Milk, the reason I wrote that book, so each story focuses on a different Jewish lesbian and their fiction, though, of course, I did draw from my own life. Um, But there was no book like that for me to read. So I wrote the kind of book that I wanted to read. So yes, so that was published in 1988, Mm -hmm. right, a year before Heather. And yeah, there was really very little, if any, um, lesbian literature, especially and Jewish lesbian literature, mm-hmm. uh, even less so. Mm-hmm. So, and back then there were also a lot, there was a movement, a lesbian feminist press movement. So there was Firebrand books and New Victoria books and her books and a lot of 
presses, or I should say a lot, but maybe a dozen presses specializing in books by and about lesbians. And of course, all those presses and most of the women's bookstores no longer exist. Oh, wow. Why is that? Um, well, it became less viable to make a living that way because of um, the chains, you know, like uh, Barnes and Noble. Mm. And then, of course, Amazon came along. And then um, more mainstream presses were starting to publish LGBTQ books, though, you know, they weren't really the same. I, I would say. But there are still um, some lesbian presses. Bywater Books comes to mind. Headmistress Press is a press for um, lesbian poets. I'm very proud that I have a few books published with them. Um, so, you know, there still are some. There will always be us um, subversive types, you know, that are... Um, mm -hmm. Well, I actually, you know, I do have books published by mainstream publishers, and I'm very proud of that. Um, so I live in both worlds. Mm -hmm. Um, now we've talked a, a lot about Heather has two mommies, um, but let's talk a little bit about, um, your book, October morning, a song for Matthew Shepard. Uh, can you share a little bit about your personal connection to Matthew's story and how it compelled you to write this book? So actually Heather has two mommies plays a large part in this because as I said before, I was traveling around the country talking about LGBTQ families and rights. And so, you know, that became known. And so I was invited to come to the University of Wyoming to be the keynote speaker for Gay Awareness Week, which was in October of 1998. And so um, this was all arranged in the previous spring. So then a couple of days before I was supposed to get on the plane, Jim Osborne, who was Matt's friend, called to tell me what had happened and asked me if I still wanted to come. And he didn't think I would, but I said I would absolutely still come because it was more important than ever for the students at Matt's school to see a grown LGBTQ person living a life and, you know, being a contributing member of society and being happy and etc so i did go out there and i gave my talk and i met a lot of matt's friends and i met some of his teachers and i told them that i would do what i could to keep his name alive in hopes that something like what happened to him would not happen again and so i kept traveling around the United States talking about Heather has two mommies. But before I gave that talk, I would give like a five minute uh, presentation about Matt. So I did that for many years. And then I realized that there were a lot of people, students, and even some teachers at the schools I spoke at who had no idea who he was. Like they had never heard of him until I mentioned him. And I thought, well, that doesn't sit well with me. And so I decided to write this book, October Morning, which explores the impact of his murder uh, in a series of poems told in different voices. And through that, I've gotten to meet and become friends with his parents, which is a very special thing because they're very special people. I, I loved the book and I really found the format to be very powerful. Um, what, made you to what made you decide to write October Morning in different forms of poetry over writing it in, say, solely free verse? Um, well, I am a formal poet, meaning that I work in form. And for me, especially when you're dealing with or when I'm dealing with 
very intense emotions, which can be kind of unwieldy and all over the place. It helps to have some kind of structure or container to pour those emotions into. And so I found, I, I did the same thing with a book I wrote about my mom called I Carry My Mother, which is a book about the last years of my mother's life. You know, again, I turned to form so that I could work in a way that didn't feel so overwhelming. So, you know, when you work in form, two things happen at the same time. I feel a little distant from the material because I have to take a step back and focus on things like syllable counts and patterns and rhyme schemes. But I also get closer to my own feelings and to the material because I have to go over it over and over and over again until it, I get it right. So that that tension of being distant and closer to the material and my own emotions about the material, I find very useful. Oh, wow. Um, well, thank you for putting that in words, actually, because I write um, poetry myself and I've always like written mostly in like formal poetry and I never understood why I, I loved it so much. And I think that's so true that it allows you to distance yourself from the emotion that you're feeling and just allows you to kind of put yourself into the work. Um, yeah. um, how long was the research process for October morning? So when I wrote the first draft, I didn't do any research at all because I wanted to explore what I remembered and how I felt about it. And so when I had, a, you know, probably maybe, I don't know, the fifth or sixth draft down and I saw the way the book was going, then I did my research. So, um, you know, I read, I think the New York Times has over 75 articles. So I read those. I read Judy Shepard's book. I read um, Beth Lafrader's book. She's a professor at the University of Wyoming and she wrote a nonfiction book. Um, I read Romaine Patterson's book. She was a friend of Matt's. And then I decided I had to go to Wyoming to really finish my research. So I actually took two trips to Wyoming. Um, so I would say this whole process took about a year. And one thing that was really interesting in Wyoming, besides going to the site where the fence stood and spending time on the land and just doing what I call emotional research, you know, like feeling that prairie wind, looking back at on the town and seeing the last thing that Matt saw. Um, but I also read the local newspapers, uh, the um, Laramie Boomerang and the I think was it Larry? There's one called the Branding Iron and one called the Boomerang. Now that tells you something right there. I mean, I'm from New York. Our, our papers are not named that, right? So mm -hmm. I really needed to steep myself in that culture and see um, what the local newspapers said. And then I also knew that I had made some mistakes. I didn't know what they were, but I knew that I had to make the book as accurate as possible. So, for example, I just intuitively felt that when Matt was out on the prairie by himself for those 18 hours, there must have been an animal that watched over him. I just had that feeling. So I wrote, so I researched, you know, what animals are native to um, Wyoming. And I, I wrote a poem for it. It was an eagle and a fox and a wolf and nothing really felt right. But then when I read Judy Shepard's book, she has this one section where she talks about the fact that when Officer Reggie Flutie, who was the first police officer to arrive, said that when she got there, a deer had been 
um, next to Matt and got up and ran off. And it was almost like the deer was keeping watch until somebody got there. Mm. And when I read that, I, I got very cheery and I thought, well, of course it was a deer, you know, deer, a deer is so nurturing and maternal. And that's why in my poem, I made the deer pregnant. So even, you know, emphasize even more just the maternal and caretaking aspect of the deer. So and so another thing is that I misremembered and I thought that both of his killers had gone to trial. And so they both initially pled not guilty. But then Russell Henderson was scared of facing the death penalty. So he changed his plea to guilty. So he never went to trial. He was sentenced after he pled guilty. Um, but Aaron McKinney did not change his plea. So he did go to trial. So I had to change that in my book because I had had originally that both of them went to trial and were tried together. And that wasn't true. So, you know, that's the kind of thing that I found out through my research. Oh, wow. Well, um, I, I personally really love the different perspectives in the book. Um, so this you kind of answered this, but this kind of brings me to my next question, which is what was the editing process of October Morning like? And did you ever have to face any censorship? Didn't face any censorship. And my editor actually um, at Candlewick did not change a word. And that mm -hmm. has never happened to me before. And I've written many, many books. So I was very, very pleased by that. Um, the copy editor had a lot to say about the notes in the back of the book. So, hmm. you know, each poem has a historical note. So I had to really show all of my source material because it was very important to, to make sure that all of that was correct. Hmm, that's interesting. Um, so it seems as time passes, October morning becomes more and more relevant. Um, what reactions does the novel elicit from readers today compared to when it was first published? Well, it's hard to compare because it's always been very, it's always elicited a very strong reaction from people and especially young people. Um, and now most of whom, or maybe all of whom weren't even alive when Matt was killed, or if they were alive, they were very young. So there's just something about the poignancy of his story that really affects people. Um, and I am always very happy to expose people to his story in the hopes that they will feel motivated to take some kind of political or social justice action to make the world a safer place in his memory, because that is the field that he wanted to go in. And I'm sure he would have, he was very passionate and I'm sure he would have done a wonderful job and really made a difference in the world. In fact, um, you know, there's a bench at the University of Wyoming and there's a plaque on it that um, is dedicated to him. The bench is dedicated to him and it says he continues to make a difference. I'm 16. I wasn't alive when this happened. And um, just reading this book, you know, I remember, you know, writing Miss Dupuy and saying, oh, my gosh, I'm already getting teary eyed <laughs> and I'm not even halfway through and I'm already tearing up. And it, yeah, it, it's really powerful. It's, it's a difficult thing and it's a challenging thing, but I really wanted my readers to feel like they were there. Mm -hmm. You know, that's really what I set out to do. And the only way I knew how to do that was through poetry. Yeah, I, I think especially like the different perspectives really do put you in the moment. Mm -hmm. So the, the book starts with the fence talking. And I had this realization that the fence 
was really an innocent bystander and had a complete life before this this um, hate crime happened and Matt was tied to the fence. So this poem is from the fence's point of view. It's called The Fence Before. Out and alone on the endless empty prairie, the moon bathes me, the stars bless me, the sun warms me, the wind soothes me. Still, 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 I wonder, will I always be out here exposed and alone? Will I ever know why I was put on this earth? Will somebody someday stumble upon me? Will anyone remember me after I'm gone? And I would also like to read the last poem in the book since I just talked about my research. Mm -hmm. um, I did go to the fence. And so this last poem is called Pilgrimage. I walk to the fence with beauty before me. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I walk to the fence with beauty behind me. Yit gadal yit kadash. I walk to the fence with beauty above me. Om mani padme hum. I walk to the fence with beauty below me. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit. I reach the fence surrounded by beauty, wail of wind, cry of hawk. I leave the fence surrounded by beauty, sigh of sagebrush, hush of stone. And I know that Uma really uh, likes the poem, The Songwriter, so I will read that. The Songwriter. I scritch, scratch, scrawl my pen across the page. I hum, strum, thrum my fingers across the guitar. I stand, step, stare out the window, hoping to find the one perfect word that escapes me, like a bird soaring out of sight, a ship sailing out to sea, a dream dissolving into air. I know that one perfect word is waiting to be caught, like a ball in a mitt, a fish in a net, a heart in a throat. I know that one perfect word is out there and will catch me off guard, arriving in perfect time like it always does, making my song perfect, but not perfect enough to bring him to life. Wow, thank you so much for reading those. Yeah, I, I, I love the songwriter. I love all the all the poems. And oh, another one I really love is The Journalist. I, I, I had to reread The Journalist many times because I just really enjoyed that one. Oh, yes, please. That would be great. Out of school, first day on the job, my editor sighed and said, here's all you need to know. A real reporter would kill his own grandmother for a good story. Now beat it. I beat it. I became a real reporter. For many years, I came up with many good stories without killing my grandmother or anyone else or even thinking about it until I came to Laramie and saw a spiffed up, suited up, made up, mic'd up newscaster shove aside a dozen people to stick her nose and camera into his family's face. I could have killed her. It would have made a good story. I, I've been writing for a while myself, and so I just want to know what advice would you give to those listening who want to pursue a career in writing? The most important thing is to 
develop a writing practice and stick to it. So whether that's every day or every other day or three days a week, whatever you decide is manageable. And I always suggest that you decide uh, something that you can succeed at. So you're not to say I'm going to write for five hours a day, seven days a week, if that's not really attainable to you. But if you can manage one hour, three times a week, start with that. And you can always improve upon it, but you want to set yourself up to success. Okay. So for success. So, you know, put it in your date book, just like, you know, meeting cough, meeting so-and-so for coffee at three o'clock, meeting myself to, to write at three o'clock and put it in your calendar. So that's the first thing. Establish a writing practice and respect your writing and stick to it. Um, read as much as you can read good things things that are not so good read prize winners read contemporary literature read the classics really read widely and read across different races sexualities ages um, as be as diverse as you can in terms of authors and subject matter and then learn the business be a good literary citizen. I mean, now, of course, there's COVID, so we really can't go out. But the good news is there's so much being offered on Zoom, so many poetry readings and workshops and all kinds of things that you can take advantage of. So um, take advantage of those opportunities um, and you'll find your way. You know, um, as fine colleagues, find a writing group that you could share your work with and um, listen to people. Um, try to be open-minded. It's, not easy to get criticism and feedback on your work, but it will serve you. So those are some of the things that I think would um, would be helpful if you're just starting or out or really in any stage of your career. Would you mind sharing what your own personal writing practice is? Um, I try to write first thing every morning. Um, I'm not always successful. Mm -hmm. It's kind of ironic, but the more successful you are in terms of having a writing career, the more demands on your time are made and the less time you have to actually write. Mm -hmm. So I try to think of being an author as my day job. Um, and my writing is separate from that. And I try to really um, hold that first thing in the morning, uh, writing time and space sacred, if I can at all do that. Mm -hmm. um, are there any projects you're working on currently? Um, I'm working on a fun series of poems about cats. Oh, I like that. <laughs> yeah. I do have a poetry book coming out in January, which is called I Wish My Father. And it is a companion book to I Carry My Mother. Um, so there's a lot of work to be done in terms of publicizing it, especially during COVID. So some of my time has been taken up with that. Plus I teach, I have a lot of private students and I teach in a MFA program, um, Spalding University School of, of Creative and Professional Writing. So I'm very busy. And speaking of the book industry, if there was one thing, um, maybe about how the book industry is structured um, that you would like to see changed, what would it be? I would like there to be a much more diverse group of people in powerful positions in the publishing industry, such as publishers, editors, sales reps, um, everybody. I think that we really need to work harder to make uh, the book industry a more welcoming place for um, people of color. 
thank you so much. This was super informative and enlightening, and I really enjoyed reading October Morning. Well, thank you so much, Leslie. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today, and I hope everyone um, who's listening takes the opportunity to acquire a copy of um, October Morning and some of your other books as well to, uh, to read them because they're amazing. So thank you so much. You're so welcome. It was a pleasure to chat with you. The music featured at the start of our podcast is Work by Kevin McLeod from Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0 license.